Well, good morning. It's exciting to be with you all. As a church planner, it's always a privilege to worship with other people, uh, especially when we're accustomed to smaller gatherings. There's something sweet about that as we're beginning our new work. But it's awesome when you get to hear a lot of people sing and just reminded of one day we'll all be singing together. And so that's super encouraging. It's also nice because our church could fit on like three of these rows, and so it's fun when we get to worship with a few more people than normal. I'm excited to be here and get to know some of you uh, a little bit yesterday and, and even uh, today, hopefully spend time with a few of you, catch in between service or whatever. Um, my name is Dustin, and my wife's name is Danielle. We've been married for about 12 and a half years. I am from Alabama. I just want you to know, I talked to Coach Saban, and I said, I've got some important relationships in Tennessee. If this could just be the year, I'd really appreciate it. <clears throat> so you're welcome for that. Um, I can't promise anything going forward. We got it done this year. Um, my wife's originally from Arizona, so I like to joke and say she's been doing cross-cultural ministry since we got married. And um, she moved to Alabama uh, for, for college, which is where we met uh, at a small school, actually, in the state. She played soccer and I played baseball there. So I'm thankful to the coach that recruited her across country. We now have uh, three children. When we began our church planning journey, we had two. So as I have seen here, I think that's a pretty effective church growth strategy. I told our church uh, when we uh, were expecting our core team that one way or another, God's going to grow our church. And so uh, we're hoping more of our young couples will begin to make disciples, and uh, we'll see uh, what might happen. So we have a daughter in third grade, a son in first grade, and now a six-month-old uh, baby girl, which is a, a lot of fun. Uh, for us to be where we are. Before uh, transitioning into church planning, I actually worked full-time in business. I served bivocationally. I helped lead a nonprofit missions ministry. I helped run a business full-time, and I was on staff at my home church. I loved all of those things. It was awesome. We were as ingrained in our community as you could have been. My wife was a PE teacher and a coach. She coached volleyball and soccer at a private Christian school in our area in Dothan, Alabama. If you know Dothan, it's probably because you drove through there to go to the beach. I don't know any other reason why you would know where Dothan is, but that's where we were serving, and we were all in in that community, and then in 2017, the Lord kind of lifted our head, and we felt like our time there was coming to an end. He had released us from that position and was opening our heart towards something new, and eventually that led to church planning, which is where we are today. We transitioned to the Nashville area from South Alabama, which was just a, a nice change because now we're in Atlanta. So we like progressively went more urban. And so now we're fully in. I grew up in a town outside of Dothan, which there are those kind of places. The town I'm from has more livestock than people. And now God called me to plant a church in the city of Atlanta. And so it's interesting to see his sense of humor. And um, even when we're there, it's not as, you know, as strong as it was before, but the Alabama still comes out. Uh, at times. So we, we spent some, uh, a little over a year in the Nashville area in the church there, Long Hollow Church, which is Hendersonville, a suburb of Nashville, is our sending church, and they sent us to Atlanta. We moved to Atlanta in an awesome time, the summer of 2020. So we moved uh, in July of 2020, and that city was really shut down. And we like, well, maybe another month, two months. And for the first six months we were there, we, we were able to do very little ministry. Um, Atlanta is very serious um, during COVID. And so many coffee shops weren't even open. I mean, the whole thing you do, you know, you get to a city, you meet your neighbors, you hosp hospitality, you have them over for dinner. You couldn't do a lot of those things. So it was a challenge. But in January of 2021, we began a small Bible study in our home on Sunday night. And that evolved into our church plant today. We had a soft launch in the fall of 2021. So we began officially covenanting together, sort of practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we would call that like our start date as a church. But we only worship publicly twice a month. On the other two nights, we would do like a team equipping time where we're still building our core team. 
And then in the new year, we began meeting three times. And then on Easter of this year, we started meeting weekly. So we're still not even one year into weekly worship gatherings. We have just over 30 members, and we have about 50 people on Sundays, which we're excited about considering when we moved and how many people we moved with, but God's been faithful. We've had two baptisms since our time in the city, which has been awesome. And just a few weeks ago, we got to celebrate our first child dedication service. So it was really cool. We had three families that were a part of that. I never intended for mine to be one of the first families dedicated child at our church, but God did. And so that was pretty cool um, to see... Uh, those mile markers that become special for a church family. And next weekend, we have our very first City View wedding. So it's pretty exciting. All those things that you're just accustomed to being part of a church family, every time you do that in a church, it's uh, a church plant, it's the first time. So it's really special for us to have those moments. We currently meet in Atlanta proper. We are one mile from the Brave Stadium. We're on the same road, if that helps you at all where we are in Atlanta. We meet in a co-working venue, which is part of a shopping center. So it's anchored by a big movie theater, which actually butts up to our wall. So during the time I'm preaching, the walls are shattering. And sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it's just weird. And that's, that's church planning. And so now it's really awesome when we tell people when you're coming to our church for the first time, because there's a movie theater, there's some of these landmarks that's obvious where we are. But I like to tell people there's two empty retail stores that are near us that just got filled, one with a spirit Halloween. And so we show up, and there's a Spirit Halloween. So now I can tell you, if you'll go just above the Spirit Halloween to the left of the liquor store, you'll find City View Church. <laughs> Pretty strategic location. I would not have picked it, but that's where God has us. And um, that's the only thing we found available. And it's pretty interesting. We have to shield our kids' eyes as we go up the escalator, and it's a lot of questions. And then um, the sights and smells of Atlanta are all around us after as well because we meet in the evening. It's pretty busy after the movies get out, and that's the only time we've been able to meet. So it's challenging. It's exciting. It's all the things. But we are excited to be there, excited to be here. Uh, I do have a relationship with your church. Dr. Paul Mermilliot is a friend of mine. We started in the Ph.D. cohort together at uh, Southeastern. And so I'm excited to build on that relationship. I've come and actually hung out with some of your staff before, and Mike and I have spent some time together. And so I'm excited for you all to get to know us a little better and me get to know you. And I'm going to share a passage today that God used to call us into church planting. I don't know if some of you will be called in church planting today, but I think he's calling all of us into mission. So I'm excited for us to kind of see what this looks like together. Let me ask you before we go to the text, <clears throat> have you ever done something that scared you before? Like, maybe just think about it for a moment. Something could be recently if we have some newer parents. Now, if, if, if you're dedicating, you know, the child and doing the commissioning, and it's your third or fourth, it's a little different. There's a lot less fear, probably. But first-time parents is a super scary thing. Maybe you started a new job, or you had a career change, or, you know, mo this, I don't know exactly, but this seems like a town where a lot of people kind of grow up and stay in the area. So maybe you, like, move away. That's a big deal. And it's like a new place, or you go off to school. There's a lot of those things that are these big decisions when you step into, you have this moment of truth, like, am I going to take this step of faith? And it's a scary moment. And you may not say that out loud, but a lot of times you've been there. So I just want you to think about a moment in your life when you did something that scared you. For some of you, that's driving in Atlanta, and I'm more used to that. But like something that just might scare you. What did that feel like? Do you remember those moments? Do you remember what is that internal battle, that struggle, and then that gut check? Am I going to step forward where I believe God is leading me? That's exactly what our family felt when we answered the call to plant. And as we were wrestling with that call, that God, we think this is where you're clearly leading us, we had that moment of, will we move forward or not? And I want you to think about what those, some of you could be in a moment like that today. Some of you have been there before. 
And with that in mind, I want us to think about the courage that we can find in the passage, the courage we can find from the Lord when we're in a moment of decision. Right now, we are in church planting in a place of dependence like I've never experienced before. And some of you are dependent on the Lord on a regular basis, and you know what I mean. There are some things that you're called to do in life that you actually can't do in your own strength. There's much of what we do that we can kind of control on our own in one sense. Church planting is one of those things that it doesn't matter. Like you can't necessarily just work harder and get the results you want. God has to move. And that place of dependence is scary, but it's exciting. And it's awesome because you do see God move. So I want us to think about what it looks like this morning for you to live in a place of dependence where you position your life to live in such a way that you say, if God, if you don't do this, it won't happen. That's what it looks like to live on mission. Because if we can accomplish the mission of God without the power of Holy Spirit, then we're probably not on the right mission. And that's what I want us to think about. So the title today is Live Sent. How do we live that life? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. So go ahead and turn there if you will. In Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 35 through 38. I typically preach from the CSB that is very accessible to our people, and I did not ask what version you usually listen to, so I'm sorry, but I'm going to be reading from the CSB this morning. I'm not sure if that's exactly what's on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. The big truth I want you to walk away from today with is this. When we see the heart and ministry of Christ we are compelled to answer the call of Christ. And I hope you'll see the heart in the ministry of Jesus and then respond with a yes to the call of Jesus. I'm just going to read verses 37 and 38, and then we'll pray together. Then he said it to his disciples, he being Jesus, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of this passage. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text, help it to become very clear to us today. But I also ask that you would challenge and convict us. Give us the courage to obey. I pray this is a church of people who live dependent lives in order to fulfill your mission wherever you called them to live, work, and play. Lord, I pray that maybe even today you would call someone out of this congregation to go across the street to their neighbors, or maybe even you'd send them around the world to the nations. Lord, we ask that this would be a a spurring moment for us, but also a spurring week for us as we sense your calling to the harvest. Lord, send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to consider as we look at the passage today, how we can all just intentionally live on mission. How you answer the call to mission is different than me. We're all going to look different in one sense. We're all called to the same mission. How that's lived out may look different, and that's okay. So a little context to this point to help understand what Jesus is calling his disciples to and ultimately what he's calling us into is for the first nine chapters in Matthew's gospel. Essentially what's happening is Jesus has come on the scene, and he's primarily been the agent of ministry. At this point, Jesus has been doing most of the work, most of the ministry. And now the disciples are introduced to us. In one sense, for the first time in this capacity as the 12, and you'll see a version of this passage in other places of gospel accounts where you'll see what we know as the 72 as well. So this is a very pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus because he transitions from him being the primary worker of ministry to start equipping and sending us as the primary workers of ministry. So it's a pivotal point that we'll see that we're invited into together I think it's important for us to understand. Today, we're going to look at three elements from the life of Christ. 
as we walk through this passage that I think will help us understand our place in God's mission. The first is this. I want you to see the ministry of Christ in verse 35. So we think about the ministry of Christ. This is just a snapshot. This is not the entirety of Jesus' ministry, but it gives us a good overview of what Jesus did. In verse 35, Matthew 9, it says that Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And so the wording here, and it says continue, Jesus is already out and about doing ministry. This is following this Sermon on the Mount. He has been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been proclaiming, and now we also see that he's healing. The wording suggests he's on somewhat of a ministry tour. He's traveling around this region of Galilee, and he's going to, when it says all the places, he's basically, like if you were to come to the Tri-Cities, there are a lot of towns here that if you told me they were here, like I would just believe you and have no idea if there's really a town with that name. And so it's like Jesus went to enough of those areas to say he's been to the Tri-Cities region. And so that's essentially what's happening. It doesn't mean he went to every single person, but he's kind of gone on a tour of Galilee, He's traveling through the area, and he's starting to do some types of ministry that we'll see. Two things that really stand out that Jesus emphasizes as far as, like, where he places his time. He does that in teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, and then in healing. So we see that Jesus focused on physical and on spiritual needs. He came to teach and to heal. And when it talks about all the kinds of the illnesses and disease and everyone, it doesn't mean that everyone walked away healed, but enough of healing ministry was taking place to where there was a lot of sickness, a lot of brokenness that was being addressed. So there was a very much a high emphasis on the physical needs of the people and of course a high emphasis on the spiritual needs as he would teach sound doctrine, preach the good news, essentially proclaiming himself as coming. I think it's important when we see that what Jesus focused on for us to do the same, to focus on physical needs of people, not to ignore those things, but of course we eventually get to the gospel as well. Those are not either or, it's kind of a both and. Jesus modeled that well for us. It's also important for us to think about the fact that we have physical needs points to something outside of us. I think one reason God designed us to the way we are is the reason we're not God and one characteristic we can't share with him is God is self-sufficient. means he needs nothing outside of himself. But we are not. We need things outside of, we need food, we need sleep, we need all sorts of things. In many cases, we need healing. And so all of our physical needs point to the fact that we need something outside of ourselves to fulfill us. Ultimately, that points to our greatest need, which is spiritual. And Jesus sees these two working together. So I believe that we should mimic the ministry of Christ. As you might say here, we should strive to serve the vulnerable. We should look for these needs. We should serve people. And then eventually, as we meet physical needs, we also want to share spiritually. We don't want to stop short of the gospel. Mercy ministries are important and it's helpful. But eventually, we don't don't want to not get to the cross because then we might be accidentally, functionally preaching a social gospel. So we want to neighbor well. We want to serve well. We want to show hospitality. We want to meet needs. And then eventually, we want to get to Jesus. We can't ignore physical or spiritual needs. I think Jesus does that perfectly in a way that we want to model ourselves after. Then when you begin to serve people in their brokenness, as Jesus did so well, and maybe you've experienced before, you grow in your care and concern for others. It changes your heart when you serve other people, especially in this way. When you share the gospel with someone or you meet a physical need, it does something for you as well. So the second element I want you to see, not just the ministry of Christ, but also the heart of Christ. This next verse is, to me, one of the greatest snapshots we have of the heart of Jesus. To help us kind of unlock and understand what does Jesus think and feel and how can we do the same. 
So in verse 36, on this tour of ministry, he's preaching, he's healing. And as he's out and about doing ministry, it says when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So I believe to truly understand the ministry of Christ, we must understand the heart of Christ. So this gives us an idea of what Jesus was thinking and seeing and feeling as he was doing ministry here on earth. The, the phrase that really stands out, felt compassion, or in some translation it says that he had compassion, is, a, is the important phrase that helps unlock what's happening here in this text. And this is a phrase that's hard to translate in the way we would use English today. It's, it's, it's deeper. It's not just he, he felt something for them. The phrase that had compassion, it speaks to this gut level reaction, this response that you see this need that is so great that you're just like, you're moved. Like you just have to do something about this need. It's just deeper than feeling sorry for someone. It goes beyond pity. This is like this gut level, like I am just motivated. I've got to respond. I can't ignore this. So one way to say this is compassion means move to action. And so when you have compassion, you're moved to action. And that's what we see that Jesus is doing. He sees they're distressed, they're dejected. Another way of saying that, that there's just brokenness everywhere. There's spiritual brokenness, there's physical brokenness, and his heart breaks for the state of the people that they're in. And so he has compassion. He's moved to action. He's compelled to do something about it, which is what he's done for us as well. This same phrase is what you see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're not familiar with that parable, there was someone who had fallen into some issues. He needed help, essentially in a ditch on the side of the road, beaten, broken. And two people in that time, as Jesus is telling the story, that should have helped this person because of their training and background, those two people ignored this man. And then the Samaritan, who in the story is interesting because he's the last person you think would help, responds to the needs of this man. But the same phrase is there. It says, this good Samaritan, as we know him, had compassion. And so in the same way that this man had compassion, Jesus has compassion. And at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is making the point. He said, now you go do the same. We're supposed to model the heart of Christ. But you'll never own the mission of God. You'll never own the mission of God until you have the heart of Christ. Until you're moved to action. Until you're compelled to do something about the brokenness you see in the world. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus was the Good Samaritan toward us. You were in the ditch. You were broken and helpless, and there was nothing you could do to change your spiritual state. And Jesus had compassion on the state of your soul, and he was moved to act on your behalf. That's what he's doing in this passage, and that's what he's calling us to do. That's why we meet needs and share the gospel, because we have compassion. Unfortunately, though we're supposed to respond the same way, many of us suffer from what psychologists call the bystander effect. This essentially means in a state of emergency, a bad car accident or some situation, there's other people around, and you don't move yourself to act. You don't respond because as a bystander, you think someone else will. And unfortunately, that's the state a lot of us in the church. We suffer from the bystander effect. We see the needs in the world. We see the needs in the lives of our neighbors are all over the globe. And you think, oh, somebody will do something about that. Surely somebody else will see that. Somebody else that's more equipped or more prepared or more ready, they'll step in and meet that need. Surely God will call someone else to that city or to that place or share the gospel. I, th I think I'm okay. And unfortunately, that's not the right response. A lot of us think somebody else will do it, and eventually nobody does. Generally, in these type of situations, there's three types of people. I want you to think about which one you might be. 
There are those that make things happen. You run toward the action. There are those that watch what happens as an observer, and there are those that wonder what happened because you're not really sure. If you don't know which one you are, you might be the last. I'm sure someone in your life would help you figure that out. But for us, not knowing where you are, only knowing my heart here, my challenge is to think probably most of us can improve in this area. Could improve in being moved to act, in showing compassion, and being compelled to meet needs. Running toward activity and not away from it. I think one reason that we don't respond the way we should in our heart and then in our actions is because we don't see people the way Jesus did. You see, it started with his vision. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. He didn't just look at the crowds, he saw them. And so let me just ask you, I want to get real pointed very quickly. Do you see people the way Jesus does? Let me ask you a good question. How do you look at the city of Atlanta? When you see it on the news, or you think about even in the hostility of our current elections and the different things that are going on, how do you respond to brokenness? A lot of us respond with shame, with chastisement, with frustration. We don't respond with gospel. A lot of us are, we ignore needs. We're frustrated. We're bothered. We're offended. But we don't do anything positive about it because we probably don't see people the way Jesus does. I'm not saying you shouldn't be upset about things that you see in the world. I'm saying our response should probably be different to it. And some of that starts with our vision. Let me ask you another question. What if God looked at people the way you do? What if God looked at you the way you look at others? Often we give others a harsher punishment and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Praise the Lord that he showed us grace. He showed me grace. And so now I need to look at others with that same grace. So I'm not surprised when people don't respond to mission when their vision is impaired. If you don't see people the way Jesus does, you might not model his ministry either. So it starts there. And the wording we see here, distressed and dejected, it's just a picture of brokenness. I think it's very fitting for the days of Christ that's obvious here. You think about all the needs that need to be met. But it's also, I think, very fitting for our current time. I mean, you see brokenness everywhere you look. If you turn on the news, if you drive anywhere, of course, where I live, it's like I can't go a day without seeing brokenness. And it looks different ways. Brokenness is not always poverty. It's, it's not always violence. In some cases, it's broken families. It's broken homes. It's emptiness. It's loneliness. I don't know your context as well here. I know what brokenness looks like in Atlanta. I will say, after yesterday, I, I realized I was not in Atlanta anymore when my GPS told me to take a left on Hog Hollow Road. <clears throat> I don't know every street in Atlanta. I'm pretty sure Hog Hollow is not one of them. So I don't know what brokenness looks like in your context. It may be a little different. I mean, at the root, it's all the same. But this is what I've had to condition myself as to train myself to look for brokenness and respond with hope. The problem is I'm not always ready to respond with hope if I don't look for brokenness. And those two things are connected. So my, my challenge to you and the application in your context is be aware of what is distressed and dejected in your community. How can you look for brokenness? Because often God is calling us to act out of what we see in brokenness. And so if you're not sure where God's calling you, I would start with what you see. So we've got to be able to identify the pain and brokenness in our context. And so then the question is just, where is God moving you to act? 
where is he wanting to model the ministry of Christ in your life? It may start with the brokenness that you see. So when you understand the ministry of Christ, what he's calling us to model, and you begin to share in the heart of Christ, then I believe you'll answer the call of Christ. And I think those are connected. Because when you start to see pain, you know how to respond with the hope of the gospel, meeting physical and spiritual needs. And that's what we see Jesus did in this passage. So he's broken over the brokenness. And then in verse 37, his response is, he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So what is the response? A couple, first of all, the first response we see that Jesus has is Jesus responds with prayer. It's a great first step for us. And then he responds by sending his disciples after he's already sent himself. And so he sees the brokenness. He says the harvest is abundant, which means that there are people just waiting to be brought into the Lord. He knows that God owns the harvest, and his response is to pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. I love what uh, Vance Pittman says. Prayer is the work, then God works. Because God can do more in an instant than we can in a lifetime. And this is what we teach at City View. Evangelism begins in prayer. And I think for you, ministry, evangelism, responding to brokenness, it all begins with prayer. One, you're praying that God would send workers into the harvest, but also you're praying that he opens your eyes to even see the harvest. It's important also to see prayer is not a substitute for labor in this passage. We should both work and pray. Now, I love our partners that pray for us, but I'm going to be really honest. I'll try to be clear. Some of you use prayer as an excuse. Now, that sounds silly because prayer is important. It's a vital part of ministry. And maybe some of you are kind of wired to be a prayer warrior. Praise God for you. But because you are a prayer warrior does not mean you're off the hook for sharing the gospel or whatever the next step may be. And sometimes, usually the people that really have a vibrant prayer life, it flows into other areas. But some of us use prayer as an excuse to action. But prayer is an action, and then it follows by more action. <clears throat> so you pray and you work, and the two go in tandem. We like to say it like this. You pray expectantly and respond obediently. Ask God to open your eyes and then respond in obedience as he, as he, when he does. So it's important to see what Jesus prayed for as well. He prayed for needs to be met, but he did it by praying for God to call out workers, which I'm sure at this church you do regularly. You're regularly praying for people to be called into the harvest. That's what God wants us to pray. This is also in Luke 10, 2, and some people will regularly pray that at 10, 2, that you, God, raise up workers and send them into the harvest. That's what we had been doing. I'd been preaching this to, at one point in student ministry, and as I was preaching this, I felt like God saying, all right, big boy, I'm talking to you. It's time for you to put your faith where your mouth is. And I prayed expectantly, and I said, God, I want you to raise up and send people to the harvest. And you know what he did? He sent me. So here's my challenge. I want you to pray diligently that God would respond to the brokenness in this world by raising up ministers, raising up leaders, raising up disciples, and send them to the harvest. And I would love for you to pray that diligently and not be surprised when he answers. And don't be surprised when he answers with you. Sometimes, oh, I pray God for someone else to be called. But what happens when God answers your prayer with you? Sometimes you might be the answer to the need right in front of you. And God could be calling you to that. So I just encourage you to pray boldly. <clears throat> and it was for our response to that obedience uh, for, for us was life-changing. We said we're not running from something, but we're running to something. 
I never would have expected that God would call someone from South Alabama to plant a church in Atlanta, Georgia, but he did. And it was scary. And we did move our family to Tennessee. And then we did move our family to Atlanta. And we love it. It's better than we could have ever imagined. On that journey, we felt like at one point we knew Atlanta and planting when we had a holy moment with him. And I don't know what that will look like for you. You may not be called on the same journey. I do think there's a unique call to the nations. I think there's a unique call into vocational pastoral ministry. But I also think there's a general call we all say yes to in regards to participating in God's mission. And that's what happens here. So you have to ask yourself this question. Where's God calling you to serve? Where is God moving you to act and to show compassion? Because he is calling you. And when you see his ministry and you understand his heart, you're compelled to say yes to the call. And that's what happens at the end of this text. So you know what? God prayed for the harvest. He's praying to his disciples. And in Matthew 10, we're introduced to them. He commissioned the 12 and he sent the disciples. And then he sent the 72. And you know, at the end of the book of Matthew is the great commission. I'm sure you're familiar. Eventually, he commissioned all the church to go into the world and make disciples. And so the call has been given to every single one of us to join God in his mission. And we like to say it this way, is the mission of God is not reserved for super Christians. Because we don't believe there's anything such as a super Christian. There's just obedient and disobedient ones. And you've got to decide which one you're going to be. Are you going to be obedient to the call of Christ to join the mission of God? Or are you going to be disobedient and live a life that's basically about you? And that's really the nuts and bolts of it. We've got to be able to say yes to God. At City View, we want to help people, ordinary people, everyday, normal people live on mission. That's our goal. And I think that's what you're trying to do here. For some of you, that means being faithful husband, father, wife, mom, faithful single, young adult, faithful worker, teacher, lawyer, whatever jobs are here. I don't know. Faithful and and not well known and you can be anonymous but you live on mission wherever you live, work, and play every day. That's what God has called us all to. And so you've got to ask the question today to the Lord, where are you calling me to serve? Where might you be calling me to go? Because Jesus is surely sending you. And so my challenge is just to see the model of ministry that Jesus models uh, for us in this passage and really in all of his life. Jesus calls people to himself and he sends us out. I believe that everybody is called twice. You're called first to Christ towards salvation and then you're called immediately into mission. And so everybody in this room has to answer yes to both of those calls if we're to be obedient to God. And so my challenge for you is to stop and think, have I said yes to the call to Christ to allow Jesus to be your good Samaritan who died in your place and did what you couldn't do, who, who saw in your helpless state and cared enough to do something about it? And so if you're here today and you've never answered that call, my challenge is say yes to the call of Christ. He's calling you to himself. And the vast majority of you in this room who've already said yes to that call, then your yes every single day is yes to the mission of God. You've called me to yourself, Lord, now where are you calling me to serve? And you've got to say that over and over and over again. Sometimes where he's calling you for the next year may be different than the next 10 years. It's a continual journey of pursuing Jesus and saying yes every single day. And maybe you've heard that before in like a missional context. If you'll just put your uh, yes on the table, God will put it on the map. That's my challenge to you, is allow God to send you wherever he wants to. For most of you, that won't be around the world, at least long term, maybe on a short term trip. And that's okay, because God's called you here. You know what? I don't know if I could live in Johnson City, Tennessee, or the Tri-Cities, or whatever other town you're in. But God didn't call me here. He called you. And I'll be honest, there's some of you in the room thinking, praise the Lord he called you to Atlanta, because I could never do it. And that's okay, because God's called me. But I would just say, we all have to be willing and open to do whatever God has called us to do. 
And then just imagine what that would look like if the church just did that. The church globally would model the heart and ministry of Jesus and just continually say yes to his call. It would be transformative. That's where we have the church today and the wildfire that we, we all desire to see happens when regular, ordinary followers of Jesus just say yes over and over and over again. And I think that's what we have to ask him, ask God to do in our lives. And you've got to be willing to say yes wherever he leads you. And as it relates to Atlanta and what we're going through, there are some ways that some of you in here might be called to Atlanta. It really is awesome. We love it. I go to a lot of Braves games. We have a lot of fun. Residential Atlanta and what you see in Atlanta is not the same thing. Living there and driving through there is very different. Going there for an event versus living there every day is very different. So I would encourage you to come visit. Some of you could serve us in a great way just by doing a short-term weekend trip. You come serve alongside us. Or you could come and experience a fully portable church ministry. You can help us unload our trailer, set everything up, have a great worship service, and then sweat as you load it all back up in the trailer and drive a trailer in Atlanta traffic. I'd welcome you to come do that with us or maybe serve in our kids' ministry or some area. For some of you, you may have friends or family in Atlanta. There may be people, oh, so-and-so just moved there. They got a job or you know someone in school. Please connect them. We will take any opportunity we can to have someone into our home or to grab coffee or lunch or whatever it is. You'd be surprised how often we get opportunities like this to share and pray and get to know other people. And then some kind of random connection that you think of has led us to someone in the city. So if there's a way that you could connect us with someone, I'm completely open to that. If the Holy Spirit's prompting you today to come to Atlanta, I'll welcome you with open arms. You can come visit with us. But wherever God's leading you, my challenge is for you just to say yes. Because you never know what is on the other side of your obedience. And it's life-changing when you put your ass on the table. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I think the band may come back up. Pastor Mike's going to take the service from here and lead you in however you usually respond into the service. I just don't want you to leave and just have this be some other Sunday. I just want this passage to kind of stir in your heart. Ask God where he's leading you to do. And then say, God, give me the courage to show compassion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to answer your mission, to say yes. Lord, thank you for showing compassion to us. Thank you for not leaving us in our helpless estate. So if there's some in the room who've never responded to that first call to come to you, I ask that you'd give them the clarity and the courage just to say yes to you now in terms of salvation. But for many in the room who've already said yes to that call, who've put their yes in your hands for eternity, I pray you'd help them do that every day as it relates to your mission. Or give us eyes to see people differently, just to have compassion for different people. People that may look different, have different life experiences, in many cases just live in brokenness. Help us to be trained or to see brokenness and respond with hope. I pray this church is full of compassionate people who live on your mission every day. Well, if there are some right now that you're prompting to go to a certain person or a certain place, give them the courage to follow through with that, whether that be this afternoon or in the days or weeks to come. We ask that you would just lead us in obedience. Lord, for the vast majority of us, that doesn't mean a complete life change, but it means a repurpose of what we do every day. So give us eyes to see, Lord. Help us to share in your heart and your care for others. And give us the courage to act, to say yes when you call us to go. Help us to be a going people who live sent every single day. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.